This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Seton Home Study School, an accredited school assisting homeschooling parents with an academically excellent and authentically Catholic curriculum. For more information, go to seatonhome.org. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the biggest little podcast in the world and a weekly podcast of great Catholic conversation. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am on vacation. And even better than that, I am joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon, who is holding down the fort, driving the bus, doing all of the metaphors that you can think of to um, convey the fact that Ed is running the show while I am just... You know, maxing and relaxing, as the as the kids once said. I am really proud of you, JD, and I want to say that up front. Why is that? Well, you said last week that you were going to go on vacation, and I didn't call you a liar, but I. <laughs> it didn't actually occur to me that you were going to do it. I mean, I knew you were going to get in the car with your family and you were going to drive across country to a place for the stated purpose of going on vacation. But I thought that meant that you'd spend 12 hours in the car texting me from the back seat, which is what you normally do. And then when you got there, you I just... I usually decline driving just so that I can work, but I yeah. I drove like you know, about half this time, yeah. Yeah, and then you got mm-hmm. there and you've actually been on vacation. Normally all being on vacation for you means is while you're on the phone to me, you're also complaining about the crappy Wi-Fi. Um, so, <laughs> well, they so, upgraded the Wi-Fi. Well, but I, I haven't noticed. I, you've not been around. You've not been working. I'm very, very impressed. I'm proud of you. Well done. I mean, apart from a couple of late night text messages about Bradley Cooper, which we won't go into, um, <laughs> y- you haven't really been in touch. And I'm, oh man, I'm, I'm sincerely impressed. Well done. Good for you. We've, we have worked together. We have been doing this little show. We have been doing this thing that we do for, uh, journalisming, journalisming away, uh, for, you know, four plus years now. Yeah. Give or take. And I don't think I've ever known you to take a week off. So, you know, good. This is growth, JD. That's what I'm saying. I'm recognizing progress where I see it and, and good for you. Well done. I do have what you might call a problem with work. I am, I do work, you know, I guess you might say I work too much if that, you know, I do. No, no one's saying that. No, one's saying <sighs> no, 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 I'm saying it. I'm just trying to get some things out of it. No, I, I don't do, want you to I work rec- less. I, no, I just want you to recognize, go on vacation. I recognize that I do not easily stop working and that when you and I launched the pillar, which is a thing for which you and I are wholly responsible and for which now you and I are wholly responsible, like such that the feeding of our families is is um, correlated to the job our job performance uh, i i realize that i that i do i i work a lot i don't you know i work a lot of hours and stuff like that and and ordinarily when i sort of take time off i don't i, I don't i don't uh, take time you know i don't really stop stop working but you know i think as my kids get a little bit bigger like it's not it's you know there's just there's more things that they want to do and more things that i want to do with them and and just and just this has been a good vacation of um building Lego and doing a lot of swimming. And um, uh, today I went to the... Oh, last night, I was going to tell you about... Uh, the, I went to the site of a Lincoln-Douglas debate today, but I watched last night um, what is easily the worst movie that I've ever seen. Uh, and yet I couldn't stop. I, I stopped watching this movie at like one thirty in the morning. And I, there was no need for that. I, first of all, it was only 90 minutes long because it was a terrible movie. But second of all, I knew every single thing that was going to happen in the movie within the first three minutes. But I was, I watched the whole thing because I wanted to see if maybe the movie would surprise me. Like it was a, I was, I was hoping that it would have a surprise ending where basically (laughs) terrible things happened to everyone. And and it ended just on a, on a, like an abrupt, terrible note or something like that. Cause I thought that would be interesting and in a certain way commendable instead of, I mean, it it didn't. And uh, I knew exactly what was going to happen, but I watched it anyway, which I would not ordinarily do, you know, at any point in my life, watch a movie because I would, I'd ordinarily rather work. But the point is I'm, you know, I'm taking a vacation. And the reason you're proud of me about it, we should be very clear here. The reason you're proud of me about taking a vacation is because you have the belief that it means that when you try to take a vacation, I won't have the expectation that you're working or try to contact you for the purposes of work or other such things. Uh, that's inelegant. But I mean, you did take that paternity leave. I mean, how much time are you taking off here, buddy? I did take those two and a half days off when I had the baby. <laughs> you're not wrong. I... 
that, that that's entirely fair um i mean to my credit i made sure that the the child was born on a on a saturday morning so yeah know, well it, it ate in minimally to the to the working week but uh no it's not that i uh, i i would i would hope that this would lead to a lessened expectation from you uh if i tried to take a vacation or that you'd contact me less or whatever i I'm, i would feel nervous if if that were the case but i i do hope that i will i will and try and you know release my sort of death grip on my phone perhaps at some point later on this summer for a few days yeah it's refreshing you should do it you guys should go up to the to your own undisclosed location and just and like we should plan it that because sometimes because you shoot up there all the time like it's just like hey we're going up there this week but it's not like and i'm taking the week off but you guys should go up there this this summer and um and take the week off so to speak so that like you're actually not working but just you know um i may try that my family are all supposed to be up there later on this summer um all together uh and so there will be all the nieces and nephews uh, and all my brothers and sisters there at the same time and 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 actually you know you, you mentioned that i've been up there a couple of times this summer and, and that is true but it's not actually a hardship to work up there if no one else is using it and i'm there on my own because you know it's, it's something to do but it's harder to work when there's 19 children running around and things like that so maybe maybe i'll try yeah. you never know your luck we've got other things to do before that though leisure ed they say is the basis of culture yeah that's but a lie this but movie that i watched last night it was not okay so it was a movie called <laughs> it was a movie called here comes the boom have you ever seen it i i've neither seen nor heard of this film uh here comes the boom um was a kind of uh, imagine sort of um blending uh, Happy Gilmore and Mr. Holland's Opus. So um, the premise of this movie is that uh, Kevin James is a kind of a pathetic loser of a biology teacher who gave up caring about himself or students quite some time in the past. That's well in the rearview mirror. Now he just comes into school late, reads the sports paper, ignores the students. Until such time uh, as, uh, as he learns that the one teacher who at the school seems to give a damn the music teacher played curiously by Henry Winkler is, uh, is going to lose his job due to budget cuts. And also despite being in his sixties or seventies is his wife is with child Kevin James uh, in part because he's trying to um, impress the extra, the attractive nurse played by Selma Hayek, school nurse played by Selma Hayek um, stands up at a faculty meeting and says that he'll raise the money to save Henry Winkler's job. And while he doesn't get any other faculty to join him in working towards that, and he doesn't have any plans, he suddenly finds himself um, fighting in mixed martial arts fights. And um, he very quickly climbs the ladder from sort of backyard shenanigans to getting his, his UFC shot and, uh, and, and, and getting an undercard of a UFC fight in, in Vegas. And, uh, and of course, along the way, uh, helps a Dutch immigrant become a citizen, wins the heart of Selma Hayek, earns the respect of his students and himself, and then uh, has the stakes changed dramatically just moments before the bell, such that he doesn't need to lose the fight to save Henry Winkler's job. He needs to win the fight against a professional athlete. And, well, I'll just let you uh, watch if you want to find out what happens from there. Uh... <laughs> I am speechless. I'm on vacation, man. <laughs> I, if this is your experience of cinema, I understand why you don't watch film. <laughs> I I love a good movie. I this was not it. I'm not a. I am not by any stretch of the imagination a film buff, but I I do like films. I I like films far more than I like television. Um, uh, that's where you're wrong. Well, no, it's not true. There are far more good films than there are good television. There are good television shows, and you and I have our own favorites, and some of them overlap, and that's fine. And I'm not suggesting that all television is bad, unless it's the news. Um, but, uh, no, in, in general, I, I prefer the longer... It, look, I, I like my media entertainment like I like my journalism, J.D. I like the long form. I like the deep dive. I like the self-contained. It's, you know, I, I would be much happier to, for example, write one 10,000 word story on the Vatican financial scandal rather than, you know, having to serialize it over 
Yeah, unfortunately, you're writing it in real five time. Five years and, now, yeah, and and effectively driving the Vatican financial scandal with well, your excellent report. But I mean, so to, not, well, that's kind of you to say, call it excellent. But it, my point on this is <laughs> that it the, it suffers from all of the problems that television suffers from, which is by making it episodic you, and having multiple seasons and all of this stuff. You, you know, you get you get viewer fatigue and you get recycled plot lines and you get all this and I there's nothing I can do to control it. I mean, I'm not these these are not these characters are not coming out of my keyboard. I I'm just trying to, you know, present what's happening, but I'm just saying, wouldn't it be great if we could just have the movie of the Vatican financial scandal? Wouldn't we rather mm-hmm, have that? Mm-hmm. You know, which would which in my mind would be the Godfather 3 done right. I see. Okay. Well, Speaking of which, um, when we get feedback about the show from people who say, uh, I don't like when you guys talk about your personal lives or your opinions about things, I just want you to talk about the news. I, I just would li- I just would like to say, I-, I appreciate that there are people who are dedicated listeners who only like when we talk about the news, but we're flesh and blood. And, you know, if you send us on vacation, do we not watch Kevin James films is my question, you know, and, um, and would we not talk about that with one another when we're... I haven't talked to you all week. This is much of which is catching up with you. I haven't, I haven't seen you. I haven't seen you. Yeah, and uh, and so you know, I I appreciate that there are people who wish that we only talked about the news, but that's not this show. Um, and uh, and I like talking about other things because I like hearing what you have to say. And uh, listeners who like that too, I'm very glad. But I have not read the news really all week, Ed. So I. I'm actually hoping that what we can do on this show is that you can catch me up. It seems to me, I've just been kind of looking at headlines, but it seems to me that there are two things happening in the news and life of the church this week that we could talk about that are very interesting and that comp- that, that kind of go together in a certain way. Because the Pope has made a visit to Canada. We kind of previewed that visit in our show last week. The Pope has made a visit to Canada, and by all accounts, as far as I can tell, there have been some ex- very beautiful moments in that um, papal penitential pilgrimage to Canada. And... Um, and many people, but not everyone, ha- seems to have responded very positively to the Pope's presence there, uh, the Pope's pastoral presence on his penitential pilgrimage. And and I'd like to talk about that. And then, um, you know, down South America way, there have been protests in the Diocese of Iran, Ar- Argentina, um, pertaining to a friend of the pontiffs, Bishop Gustavo Oscar Zanqueta, who is on house arrest after being convicted of a... Of a, a sexual crimes against seminarians, but was not sentenced to prison because of his advanced age, et cetera, et cetera, and is living now in an ecclesiastical I'm residence. sorry, his advanced age? Yeah, isn't that why he wasn't sentenced to prison? I mean... No, no, he claimed, I think, hypertension. Uh, or oh, medical. that's right, he claimed hypertension. That's the right. dude that's resigned right. in 2017 at the ancient age of 53. Yeah, I know, I'm just saying for prison. I thought that's what he... I thought that's why he asked for house arrest was for his... No, they, you know, they found... Uh, and. When I say found, it, it struck me that they were really looking um, for medical grounds to ask for house arrest. Yeah. Okay. Well, he's fifty-eight now. So anyway, not advanced age of fifty-eight. But um, but uh, so we have these two stories. One, the pontiff on this pastoral penitential pilgrimage, uh, which seems to be, by many accounts, uh, a success, and and which seems to have had very many very beautiful moments, and then this um, these protests in South America, in, in Argentina, about um, the situation of Bishop uh, Oscar Gustavo Sanqueda, who is a bishop who has been convicted of sexually abusing seminarians and who is a friend of the pontiffs who uh, had an assignment in the Roman Curia after he resigned, all of the things that we'll talk about with him. But there's there's kind of like this a study in, in, the, in, the, in the facets of Francis in a certain way because there is this thing which is a witness to the gospel that the Pope is doing, that people seem to be receiving well, that, that, that we should talk about. And then there is there is this thing where the Pope is correlated with or associated with um, in both an, ecclesi- an ecclesiastical scandal in the person of Bishop Sanchetta. And it seems to me that these are sort of two of the sides of Francis that are kind of, by virtue of their timing at least, juxtaposed with each other in a way that we might talk about. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right that this has been a, a, a week of the two sides of the Francis pontificate. I think I think you're right. I think it's a good way of looking at it. Um, you so know, maybe you, we could start. Could you just tell me about Canada? Because like I say, I genuinely have not been. Canada has been going fine, I guess, is how you'd call it. I mean, there have been. As, so as the Pope it, went to Canada on well, Monday. Is that right? Yeah, the Pope went to Canada on Monday. And I mean, let me get his entire itinerary up in front of me because I, I don't want to be an unfaithful recounter of 
what himself has been up to. Um, but I mean, he's by the way, the best part of taking the role of I haven't been reading the news, so catch me up is that you've suckered me into hosting the show. Is that what you're going to (laughs) say? Well, I don't have to have the itinerary up because I can just be like, well, I really haven't been reading the news. I've just been swimming in the lake. So, you know, you know, yeah, but I mean, you you out me as a guy who works professionally in the news, but doesn't actually read all that much news. (laughs) Well, I've been swimming in the lake. I no, I'm not saying you should have been reading more. I, you know, no one's, no, no one's blaming you, JD. No one's blaming you. It's, Jeez, I'm fine. never taking a vacation again. Uh, look, once was more than I ever thought you were going to do. So <laughs> I don't think I'm ever taking one again. Yeah, I, I think you've done great. Um, no, he's done. He's done a couple of things. I mean, he had this very when he first arrived in Canada on Monday. Um, he had this initial meeting uh, at a at a at a First Nations parish. He visited a, um, a cemetery. He gave you know the the first sort of round of apologies uh about the residential school system about um about the history of colonialism in and institutions in the way in which the church participated that did that both passively and actively and, and all of these things and you know that was i i think i thought it was particularly impressive I ended up writing a thing about saying, you know, what he did here was actually quite impressive. He did more than apologize. He correctly identified the problem with, because that's what triggered this this penitential pilgrimage, as it's being called, is you know the 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 furore last year over uh, the the residential school system in Canada, the discovery of all of these remains in what were unmarked graves, um, not you know not as it seems as originally suspected or assumed to be mass graves. Thank God, um, but nevertheless, unmarked graves of uh, of children who died in children who died schools. in these residential schools, and the residential schools were not only places where terrible abuse took place, but even in the best of circumstances, it was an entire network that was chronically underfunded. It was full of disease and hunger and neglect and all of this stuff. Um, and its intention was what what the Truth and Reconciliation Committee calls a cultural genocide. Because it was it, cultural its genocide. Intention yeah. was to uh, to to divest these kids of their we talked about this last week but its intention was yeah. to divest the kids who are sent there by law of their culture of their yes. language of their yeah. exactly um and and i think what francis did in his apology on monday that i that i liked very well was he identified i think the key um sort of unique horrifier of the residential school system now there were a lot of horrors about the residential school system and i'm not suggesting that you know you should only talk about one or whatever but i'd say what was uniquely horrific about the residential school system was, as you say, its its stated purpose was to forcibly separate children from their families under for, under force of law, and to basically culturally cleanse them, to remove from them their family ties, to remove from them their sense of self, their sense of people, their sense of nationhood, their language, their culture, their history, their identity, mm-hmm. and that is not only bad in itself, but then to say, oh, and the quote unquote benefit of all this is we are going to Christianize you. You know, we will impose baptism on you, we will give you a good Christian education, we will make you good Christians. Is antithetical It's a real instrumentalization of the of, of the gospel. It's an instrumentalization of the gospel, it's an instrumentalization of the sacraments. Um and and more importantly, it completely removes from the entire concept of spreading the gospel, of evangelization, the idea of conversion, because the entire premise of conversion is that it's a self-generated decision, that it recognizes free will, that it is voluntary, that the church proposes, the 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 evangelist announces the good news, and that this is received, and it is the reception of the good news which prompts change. It's not imposed. And it's just antithetical to the entire missionary mission of the church that you would impose a some, let alone to the point of the denial of all natural rights of the individual and the family. Uh, and, and so this is something that Pope Francis talked about on, on Monday, and I was really, really glad that he did. I thought it was very important um, to put his finger on, as he did, that this it's not just that bad stuff happened in these schools. It's that the entire premise of these schools was an offense at its core, that this wasn't a good system or a good intention gone wrong, that there was no good in the intention of these things, that these things were malum and say, 
that you know there was there's you know th- this wasn't a question of it went off the rails a little bit it was like no this should never have been in the first place and i think that was very important and i think it was very well said i mean he's done other things since then you know he's he spent some time at a at a first nations parish uh he gave uh you know he spent the evening there um it was you know the the pictures and the video that were coming out of it there was at one point where they were basically like running the b-roll of him in this parish church that was you know a couple hundred people in there um but at the same time they weren't broadcasting the sound and it was really you know in a way it was nice not to hear what he was saying because it felt kind of like an intrusion to be able to hear it but it was clearly a very intimate setting and that was great um he's done this sort of stadium mass thing and they have he hasn't walked down the streets they've wheeled him down the streets of quebec today i think um today being thursday He's met some uh, some government officials in Canada, as popes are wont to do when they travel. Um, but no, I think I think it has been an important papal trip. You know, you asked, you know, has it been a success? Has it been well received, and all that sort of stuff? And I think the answer is yes and no. And unpacking that is the kind of thing that I think is both easy and complicated. I think it's fair to say that. Whenever the Pope makes a trip that is a sort of self-described penitential trip, you know, goes with the intention of saying sorry for something or goes consciously under a cloud of some kind, you know, with something hanging over it, um, nothing the Pope does or says will ever be good enough for everyone. And when you're dealing with something as horrific as the legacy of the residential schools in Canada and all of that stuff, I mean, quite right, there will be people who just say, oh, great, so what? You know, that's, that is a reasonable human reaction to that. And I don't necessarily fault them for it. I mean, there are also, um, uh, there are people outside of the First Nations community in Canada who I think have been very strident and striking in their tone and demanding more of the church and saying the church is, uh, uh, culpable and it was damages i think indeed canadian politicians and government officials have said things like this which i find interesting given that um, many people seem to have forgotten including uh, members of the canadian government perhaps deliberately uh, that the residential school systems were not a church idea they were a canadian government network of schools erected by in law by the canadian government it was their idea the school and the, the religious orders and dioceses were like other religious institutes effectively vendors con- contractors i mean yes. th- this is the re- this is the formal relationship by which they got themselves involved and yes. this is the thing for which the pope has apologized that the church religions you know religious institutes or dioceses would get involved in this thing rather than oppose it that's right but the tone coming out of the canadian government or at least some members of the canadian government seems to be well, you catholics came in here and built these horrible residential schools and that's mm-hmm. terrible and you really owe the whole canadian people an apology for that it's like well right. no that's that's not what happened. The church has a great deal to apologize for, but it doesn't owe any apologies to the Canadian government. Um, and it it seems to me that 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 in terms of how the Pope is being received, th- there are two there are two sets of voices that I have heard that have been critical of the Pope. Um, I'm sure there are many others, but there are two voices that have kind of stood out to me, or two sets of voices that have stood out to me. And I wonder if you have heard others. But you know, those who who are Catholics who, are, who practice the faith who say. In, in the Pope's apology for the church's complicity or involvement in residential schools, uh, embedded in that, and the Pope's apology for sort of like the church's connection to things which he decries as colonialism and these kinds of things, embedded in that is effectively an apology for the proclamation of the gospel. That the, the Pope's apology—I I have seen sort of people who are critical of the Pope who say, well, the Pope is effectively disrespecting— the French Jesuits who evangelized the indigenous people of Canada, et cetera, et cetera, by apologizing for these kinds of things with reference to colonialism and those kinds of things. That I, I don't think that's a fair reading, but it's certainly one that I've seen. I, I, I would agree that it's not a fair reading. Um, the The colonization of North America and the evangelization of North America are lines that intersect in parallel and track on occasions but are widely divergent in others. And, for and, example, and colonization is not a ju- is sort of. <laughs> the I'm using colonization evangel- pejoratively, uh, right? Exactly, but that's my point. It's like the mechanism of justly proclaiming the gospel to a people is one which which is done um, with respect to sort of subsidiarity of a of a people of a culture. Like um, the gospel is for all cultures, so this so sort of the proclamation of the gospel is not even the same as the proclamation of sort of Western or European culture, let alone certainly. Um, sort of like um, 
uh, an apologia for European government involved, you know, presence in a place. Well, absolutely. And but I mean, this is exactly what was wrong with the colonial mentality and the church's participation and co-opting by it, um, is that the premise of the gospel is that the messenger suffers in the delivery of the message. This is what Christ does. Christ suffers for us. That The proclamation of the gospel presupposes that the evangelist is willing to suffer to deliver the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That, you know, the, the missionary is the message. Um, yeah. And this is why, for example, so many of the French... As an icon of Christ crucified. I mean, that yes, seems to be... Yes, exactly. Well, this is why so many of the French Jesuits the that, that, that first came to Canada and North America and were evangelists there and are commonly called the Canadian martyrs, uh, even though I think most of them would now have been in the United States, but the, the different point, um, were martyrs, is that they kept returning to these communities to announce the gospel to them with love and total passivity in that respect, even to the point where they were violently killed for so doing. Right. They didn't announce the gospel at the point of a sword or at the point of a musket or anything else. And what the residential school system did, and this is why it is such an existential inversion of the gospels, it doesn't doesn't propose that here is the church willing to suffer to announce your salvation to you. It is saying you should suffer for the privilege of being evangelized and suffer to the tune of your entire family being dissolved and your culture being erased. And that is the price you will pay for the privilege of us bringing you baptism. And that is so completely bass-ackwards, I don't even know where to begin. So, yes, I, in some, I would agree with you that where that take is being proposed, it is a completely wrong take. Um, I mean, there were other people who have been dissatisfied with the Pope's uh, presence in Canada, um, people who say, for example, that it is heresy or something similar that the Pope wore a native headdress when he was presented. But, I mean, these are the sort of... Uh, just like uninformed. I would say yeah. crankish gadflies that you get uh, whenever <laughs> the Pope steps outside and says or does anything. But yes. Yeah. Well, then, but then, uh, so the other side is, so that's a set of sort of criticisms. that, are, But the other set of criticisms that have been made, and insofar as I know, these have been effectively endorsed by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, is that the pontiff's apologies have not been, um, and I, I think probably some indigenous communities as well, that the Pope's apologies have not been enough or the Pope has not sort of sufficiently accepted the responsibility of the church for um, its involvement in, in, in the, the residential school system. So I think there have been people who say the Pope is apologizing for too much, but then there have also been, and this is probably the more mainstream criticism, people who say the Pope has not assumed enough responsibility for the church's responsibility here. I have I have read the the texts of the Pope's various addresses and apologies during this trip in which he pronounced with as he put it shame and zero ambiguity um and total clarity that you know he was seeking the absolute forgiveness of God and our neighbor for the church's participation in the residential school system. So I'm not sure how much more of an apology he can give or how much more responsibility he can absorb. And, but I mean, then again, I, as I said, I recognize that, you know, if you are of the first nations peoples and you're, it was your family that went through this system, you're not obliged to have any one reaction or another to an right. apology, however, yeah. sincerely given Justin Trudeau, on the other hand, can go take a jump. I, you know, I, <laughs> that guy, um, quite apart from uh, my own personal opinions about him and his government. Um, again, it is the Canadian government who created the residential school system. The church has everything to apologize for here, yes, but so does the Canadian government. If the, if the residential school network was a an archipelago of neglect and hunger and disease through chronic underfunding and everything else, that was a decision of the Canadian government. The church needs to bear its own responsibilities for the sins that it committed in participating in the system. Absolutely. And most especially it needs to atone for the, as I said, existential inversion of the entire um, missionary witness to the gospel that those schools represented. Uh, but the church doesn't have to assume the responsibility of the Canadian government in creating them and bringing in the force of law that separated these children from their families in the first place. That That's a collar that should be worn by the Canadian government. And I, I, I have noticed more than a little attempt um, by some Canadian politicians to, to sort of wish to perpetuate the assumption that the entire residential school network was basically something created by um, and wholly sustained by the church 
which is just not true. I do. I do have actually more questions about that than I had expected to. Oh. Um, yeah, I do. I do have more questions about that than I had expected to. Um, I agree. With, I mean, the, the first thing I want to do is affirm for you that, like, yeah, the the those to whom the Pope is actually apologizing, which is to say, sort of um, indigenous communities and indigenous and particular indigenous people and indigenous families, like every person to, who is the recipient of an apology, have have the freedom and agency to do what they will with that apology or to decide whether that apology is sufficient for what it is that they feel aggrieved by or whatever. Um, and, uh, and so I do want to affirm that like no one can be sort of, um, compelled to forgive once an apology has been offered or to think that the apology suffices or whatever. A lesson, by the way, that I, I don't know about you, but I, early in my married life, I would often like apologize for something and it, it didn't even hit the mark of the thing which needed apologizing for. And, and I'd be like, well, why, why, why isn't everything okay? I have apologized, you know, without, it, it takes a little while, I think, to learn like, oh, I must sort of fully understand the things which are at issue. Um before I sort of fire off an apology. And and so fair enough, like I would not, uh, <laughs> you're making a face. Um, uh, it's, it's a, it, it, this, this is a hell of an aside you've gone into here, but okay. <laughs> it is. The point is, I think many people have the experience of thinking, well, I've apologized, why isn't that enough? And I think it takes time to realize like, well, well that I've apologized. It's not, my, not, enough, it's not right? my impression of Pope Francis that he's saying, well, no, I, I apologize, don't think Pope what Francis, more do you want? I don't think, I don't he's think Pope Francis kind. has that opinion at all. I think there might be people who 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 have that opinion on behalf of Pope Francis. But I don't think Pope Francis has that opinion at all. And I just want to affirm what you've said, that sort of the people who are the object, the, the recipients of the apology can do with it as they wish or judge it as they wish. And I do think it is different for the Canadian government. But I have more questions about that than I thought I was going to have. And I want to talk with you about that. But, uh, but it is time now for a word from our sponsor. And as you might know, the sponsor of this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is Seton Home Study School. Seton has been um, Seton the Seton Home Study School has sponsored like a whole bunch of um, of uh, Pillar Podcasts over the past couple of months. They have been with us for a little while, and so if you're a listener to the podcast, you know that Seton is an accredited school which aims to help homeschooling parents by um, making available textbooks, a curriculum all kinds of resources and um, and to do so in a way that is not very expensive in order to assist parents who wish to homeschool. What you may not know, and this is the thing I want to talk about today, is that, Ed, in my observation, having had Seton Homes, the Seton Home Study School as a sponsor for now a little while for the show, is these guys are pretty cool, which is to say that, um, you know, there are people who want to buy ads on the podcast, but they're also extremely concerned about what you will say on the rest of the podcast or extremely concerned about what what you might, um, how you might reference or um, do justice to their brand or represent their brand or something like that. Which, and is, these guys, which is why we have to hustle so hard for a living is because people are not <laughs> beating down the door to people do People are not always beating down the bush because we, one of the things that we have said about this show is we want to say what we want to say and we want to talk about the church in the way that we want to talk about the church and we don't want to sort of, uh, we don't want to, so we, you know, it's not that, I'm not saying that I'm above like um, this, but we, we don't want... Um, commercial interest to determine our our journalistic choices um, or just our podcasting choices. Or, or just and, the jokes we want to tell. Or just the jokes we want to tell. And the point that I wanted to say, the thing I want to say about Seton Home Study School is these guys are cool because they have never once asked us to say or not say anything. They've given us uh, a lot of information about Seton Home Study School and given us books, like their textbooks and all kinds of things to review. And we've talked with a lot of people who are homeschoolers who have very positive experiences with Seton Home Study School, which is why we took them on as a long-term sponsor with the podcast. But I just, I, I feel like in our own interactions with them, they're listeners to the show, a lot of them. They give us feedback on the show. They're they're in our own interactions with them. They're in our homes, are, J.D. I have, as I've mentioned before, I have nieces and nephews being educated with Seton yeah. Home Study. These are people who, in our experience, in talking with the people down at Seton Home Study School, are sincere disciples of the gospel, are keen um, to uh, to live the gospel um, and uh, and and love the church. And, uh, and and of all the other things that we have told you about Seton Home Study School, the one thing that I don't know if we've said co- quite so concretely is that the people who we have met and talked with at Seton Home Study School love the church and do the thing they do because they want to help families form their children to be thoughtful, sincere, intelligent, faithful Sons and daughters of the church. There is that. Also, their tuition is about one tenth of most other Catholic schools. Yeah, that's right. Uh-huh. So, homeschooling can be a good choice for a lot of families, and a lot of families feel like 
oh, homeschooling sounds cool, but I don't know if I could ever do it or it sounds like so much or how would I even begin or these kinds of things. And that's what Seton exists for is to help families figure out if homeschooling is right for them by providing them with a toolkit of all kinds of resources to make it seem not only possible, but attainable and, and reasonable and doable and manageable. I know a couple of families who not only homeschool their children and homeschool their children using Seton stuff, but they're often families with one or other of the parents are teachers. Oh, interesting. Not like teaching in the home, teaching their children. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. like they are they are also working every... They teach for a living, yeah, yeah. Yeah, one parent is at home teaching the children, homeschooling them using seat and stuff, and the other one is out teaching in a school. And I've always... I've never had the temerity to ask, what's the relationship between your the, the school that you're teaching at and the education you're offering your children at home? It seems to me that there is a choice being made there. So I don't know what to yeah. make of it. I, may, I merely make that observation that it, it must, it must, I guess what I'm saying, JD, is seat and home study must be good enough that <laughs> parents who teach in schools, in some instances, Catholic schools are still preferring to educate their children at home using their stuff. So, hey, how about that for And so what you should do if you, yeah, I mean, what we're basically saying here is we're not just reading their copy the things that we know about two out of five Catholic school. teachers that I know <laughs> use Seton just, Home Study for their we're own not just children. Their copy. The things that we know about Seton Home Study School are that these are people who, in our experience with them, uh, love the gospel, love Christ and His Church, and take their apostolic work seriously. And we know a lot of people who have benefited from that. To see if Seton Home Study School is the right thing for your family, um, check it out: SetonHome.org, which will um, show you kind of all of the resources they have as an accredited school assisting homeschooling parents with an academically excellent and authentically Catholic curriculum. And now back to our show. Welcome back to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And I do have a lot more questions about the Pope's visit, apologies, this particular apology, the Catholic... But Ed and I were just talking over the break, and um, and we feel like we both want to do more homework to be able to dive into some elements of that conversation that we haven't yet talked about, be able to dive into some of the, the deeper theological questions there. And so I'm not sure when that conversation will be, but we are going to talk about some other stuff, not because there's not more to talk about there, but just because, I, I don't, for me at least, and I do know about you because we just talked about it, I, I think we both feel like we want to do much more primary source reading before we really dive into talking um, far more concretely about that. I think that's good. I like to. I like to have my texts pre-read and arranged in front of me before. Yeah, I exactly, offer... and have some highlighting and things like that. Yes. You know who's good at helping students um, highlight no, and no, arrange no, their? No, text? no, no, no. <laughs> I like them, okay. but we got to have a show too. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well. Okay. So this is the thing. So this is the thing where, as I have seen, and like I said, I've been on vacation, but this is the thing where, as I have seen. Trudeau has criticized what the pontifex had to say, and there are Catholics who have criticized what the pontifex had to say. But for the most part, this trip to Canada has seemed, in a certain way, to be Francis doing Francis. You know, Francis is Francis in in some of the most beautiful ways, like leading with humility, leading with listening. You know, not sort of trying to impose himself, but trying, I think, to to hear what people have to say, to make sure that he brings. He, he he's not. Um, whitewashing or sugarcoating or um, uh, indifferent to mistakes that have been made by church, churchmen, church leaders, institution, the institutions of the church in the past and serious ones. And he's not, he has no problem saying that. And he has also said, I think very, very concretely, you know, a reflexive tendency to sort of defend the institution is something which we all need to self-examine because um, in the way in which, the ways in which the church is perfect, as a, a perfect society and the ways in which the church is infallible and the, these kinds of things, the church is also a human institution and we have to be willing to sort of own the things of the human institution. Um, so th those are things where the Pope, I think, has given a really kind of concrete Christian witness. I read his homily, which we'll put in the show notes, um, uh, his homily from today, from his Mass at the National Shrine of St. Anne de Bupri, I'm sure I said that wrong, which was you, which was sort of centered in the Eucharist and which brought this notion of penance and contrition and reconciliation, which which um, which which framed all of that in the Eucharistic sacrifice in a way that I thought was was really um, remarkable, and so I, I would urge you to, to read that homily. 
um, there's the Pope doing these things, and uh, and and as a symbol of, of of the Church's efforts towards reconciliation, in a way that is uniquely, I think, Francis. Then in South America, there are protests in the street, as I've read about um, the current situation of Bishop Sanqueda, and this is sort of. The other and another side. I don't even want to say the other side because the Francis Pontificate is so multifaceted. But another side of the Francis Monti- Pontificate, which is kind of put into stark relief with what Francis is doing um, in Canada, because the story of Zanchetta can't be separated from the choices that the Holy Father has made in the context of that story. Uh, no, it, it cannot. Um, so what's happening down uh, down in Arts? Well, they're angry, JD. They're angry in um, the Diocese of Oran. I mean, I want to be clear when you say there's. Catholics in the streets in Iran, they're not, they're not, it, we're, we're not into Syro-Malabar liturgical reform territory here. Nobody's <laughs> You being, called me today and you said there are Catholics in the street in Iran. And there I are. Thought, one, how many Catholics are there in Iran? I, I thought we were talking about the Persian nation and I didn't, I, I thought, well, this seems like a mistake for those guys. That that, that will not end well for them. But <laughs> but uh, in the city of Iran in Argentina, there are Catholics in the, Catholics in the Yes, in the, but, in no. the main square, the... Plaza de los Jóvenes, I think is. I don't, I don't know how to pronounce it because I know that the Argentine accent is actually um, extremely guttural and, and unpleasant. But anyway, um, there are there are, however, have been not today, uh, yesterday and on Tuesday. So when Tuesday and Wednesday, there were local Catholics in the in the main square in the city gathering signatures in a petition which is being submitted to the local Metropolitan Archbishop. Um, they are submitting their petition to the local Metropolitan Archbishop because they have had, as they put it, no joy and no response whatsoever from Bishop Zenkhetas successor as the local bishop of Iran, protesting the church's handling of Zanketa's case. So what are the people mad about? What are they protesting? Well, they're mad about a lot of different things, J.D., but the, the, the proximate cause is that earlier this month on the 8th, I believe, the 8th of July, um, Bishop Zanketa was released from jail, where he has been since he was convicted of aggravated sexual assault, um, serial sexual assault of the victims two, of that were, were seminarians were seminarians um and sentenced to four and a half years in jail uh, he was released from jail and i believe it was the eighth of of this month and allowed to serve out he was yeah. fitted with an ankle tag and he was on medical and the cause was medical because of his hypertension i think it was hypertension I'm, okay I'm, something like that yeah but it was there was a there was a quote-unquote medical reason why he was required to be released and to serve the remainder of his sentence under house arrest. And the diocese has put him up in the Monastery of Our Lady of the Valley, which... Um, now, when you say the diocese has put him up in the Monastery of Our Lady of the Valley, wouldn't it be more accurate to say the Monastery of Our Lady of the Valley? I mean, if this is a, if this is a monastery... A, a, well, that's a, what it was built for. It's currently designated as the retired priest's home. Oh, so this is not the Monastery of a Religious Institute, which has decided to take him in. No. A la this the is Catholics not a Catholics taking in McCarrick. No, this is not if a If you remember correctly, when McCarrick left Washington, he was taken in by these Capuchins in Kansas, and he lived in their friary, St. Fidelis or something like that friary in, in Kansas for a couple of years until he didn't live there anymore. But um, uh, this is not that. No, this is not that. This is the, He's been given a spot where all the retired priests of the diocese are supposed to live. Um, and people are not wild about him living there, albeit with an ankle tag, um, with full rights and dignity as Bishop Emeritus. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I can understand why that plants a question in the minds of local Catholics. Um, as I mentioned just a moment ago, Bishop Sanchetta was convicted in a civil court of aggravated serial sexual assault. And that was just a couple of months ago that, that Bishop Sanchetta was committed of, of, uh, of sexual crimes in Argentina. But, um, but before that, uh, well, so this is the thing is the, the accusations against Bishop Zanchetta that he behaved in a sexually predatory fashion against seminarians in his own diocese. And at various times, even the rector of the seminary has accused the Bishop uh, of so doing as well as seminarians themselves, as well as there was at one point, um, obscene photographs of young men, uh, discovered on, Bishop Zanchetta's phone, I believe, um, mm-hmm. it was discovered by a secretary. This is all a period going back years. He was made a bishop in 2013. It was pretty much like the first or the first and batch. And before that, of before Episcopal he Congress. was made a bishop, he had been, um, he had worked at the Argentine Bishops' Conference at the time when the Holy Father was the president of the Argentine Bishops' Conference. And he had been either secretary general or deputy secretary general. He was so executive he was a, undersecretary. No, he was executive undersecretary. So we, we call that, we would call that position 
the equivalent position at the USCCB would be associate general secretary, which is kind of like, yeah, it's num- a number two kind of position. Anyway, he was, but he got friendly with then Cardinal Borgoglio. And there the, he grew close with the Holy Father. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but yeah, he was made a bishop in 2013 and basically Francis's first batch of Episcopal appointments. And um, depending on who you listen to, uh, he resigned in 2017 for reasons of ill health at the age of 53, or from 2015 onwards, he was accused by the senior clergy of his diocese of financial mismanagement, sexual harassment, sexual misconduct, as I said, the finding of some extremely problematic imagery of young men on his phone at work, and various other things. And the Vatican was informed of this in 2015, and again in 2017, and uh, as I said, in 2017, he resigned on quote unquote, for quote unquote, health reasons. Um, the Vatican still, as near as I can tell, maintain that the first they ever heard of accusations against Bishop Sanchetta was uh, in late 2018, although there has been some fairly extensive and I think documentary reporting in, by Argentine media sources, uh, oh, sorry, excuse me, Argentine media outlets. I, I don't want to say proving beyond a shadow of a doubt, but certainly appearing to prove to me that these complaints against Sanchetta were made in 2015 and 2017. Um, but as you say, the another complicating factor apart from this discrepancy in the Vatican's accounting for when uh, these complaints were received is that no sooner had he resigned from the diocese for reasons of ill health, but he was sort of spirited away. Uh, and then he popped up in Rome where Pope Francis didn't just give him a job, but created a job for him. Like didn't give him a, a curial job that was vacant over, but like made him a job, a non-job, effectively. Um, in APSA, the mm-hmm. Holy See's sovereign wealth sovereign manager, wealth pay manager. paymaster, and, uh, you know, sort of national reserve bank, um, which is an interesting place to put a guy who is accused of, in addition to sexual abuse, um, serious financial mismanagement. So that ain't great. And he was also living the Domus Sancta Marta, where the Pope lives... Um, during this time, and he basically continued to that job. He took a brief break when uh, the Argentine prosecutors filed their charges against him, but he went back to right. work. And it was only when it was clear it was going to trial that he finally stood down permanently and went back to Argentina. Right. Um, and there, despite all of this, you know, in 2019, the Pope announced, or not the Pope announced, the Vatican announced that um, the Pope had greenlit a canonical investigation into Zanchetta that this was leading to a canonical trial of the bishop. Um, and when, when an investigation leads to a trial, it means that at least the, uh, semblance of truth, this, at least the semblance, semblance of, of truth everything. has been discovered. Right. Um, we have not had a single, and when I say we, I mean, no one, um, has had a, the a, church has no indication. Yeah. yeah. Has given no indication of when that trial ended, what the results were, um, if any penalties were imposed, they were not publicly imposed. Uh, Bishop Sanchez, as I said, continues to enjoy the full rank and privileges of Bishop Emeritus of his former diocese. So we know he was convicted in a criminal court in Argentina, but we have no idea what happened in the canonical court. But we also know that when things that were aberrant were discovered or alleged about him, um, including these things on his phone, et cetera, et cetera, that the Holy Father effectively created a place for him in Rome. And the criticism has been all along that the Holy Father had a blind spot with regard to Bishop Zanchetta and that the Holy Father sort of has blind spots with regard to his friends. But that criticism of blind spot probably, it's not as if the Pope was just sort of not seeing this. It's that the Pope was talking with the guy and then giving him positions. Yeah, and and spiriting him away to the Vatican where he was beyond the reach of, for example, Argentine civil authorities while they were trying to prosecute him for a great period of time. Right. Um and it's, I mean, it's more than that. It, even um, when the civil trial was getting going, the lawyers in the case subpoenaed the files of his concluded, apparently, uh, CDF trial and investigation as evidence. And Pope Francis had previously changed the law on how the church handles sexual abuse cases to allow for the sharing of such documentation where it exists in cases that have con- been concluded with civil authorities on request. And yet the yeah. files never arrived. They waited for months. And eventually they said, well, we're going to have to continue without the Vatican files because clearly they're not going to cooperate. And they're not going to help us in this. So the Pope's own legal reforms on this were ignored. And and let's not forget what was going on in 2018 
when these, when the, even the Vatican admit, by which point they were receiving the allegations against Zanchetta, and he was living and working in Rome in a job that the Pope had created especially for him, and living in the Dome of Sanctumarta. This is 2018. This is right when the whole McCarrick thing was blowing up. That Zanchetta right. was living in the Dome of Sanctumarta and working in APSA while the Argentine prosecutors were trying to build a case against him thousands of miles away, while just around the corner in the Holy See, the Pope was chairing a meeting of representatives from all of the bishops' conferences of the world to discuss episcopal responsibility and accountability in the face of sexual abuse allegations. Right. It is very, very difficult to put a positive spin on that. And in fact, if you back up, Zanchetta is largely taken to be sort of representative of perennial problems that the Pope has had with personnel issues related to sexual abuse and misconduct. The reinstatement of a priest in Italy who was convicted of um, uh, horrendous uh, crimes of sexual misconduct. The sort of black box of Vos Estes Lex Mundi investigations by which there's no, we've talked about this before, no transparency or no clarity about what's happening investigation, in investigations in a process which was designed precisely to sort of reassure Catholics that justice was being accomplished and that it would be accomplished it's in a transparent manner. more or less direct statement to press that victims of sexual abuse in Chile were communist agitators trying to yeah. besmirch the church and that he never received accusations about bishops there or about that particular right. bishop-priest duo there. Which was eventually proven not to be true, Which event and eventually the Pope, that he never received those things, uh, you know, which eventually the Pope sort of walked back this idea that um, these uh, allegations in Chile against bishops were um, were being ginned up by political enemies. So the Pope walked that idea back and and actually expressed contrition about it. But um, yeah, but only after Cardinal O'Malley basically said he was very disappointed in that. Right. Well, and yeah. made it you know. Uh, it, let's put, let, let's put the just pope connect. In the corner. I mean, you know, well, he put the, the pope the in the corner, not just by saying I I really was disappointed the pope did that, but it was also incredibly clear as O'Malley was saying that that. He also had the power to say, no, I know the Pope received these allegations because I put them in his hot little hand right. myself. Exactly. exactly. Um, and he he stopped short of saying that. And I think the Pope's uh, sudden uh, frankness and candor in walking back those statements was, I think, in, in, in no, um, was not unconnected to Cardinal O'Malley's intervention. So if you zoom out from Zanchetta, uh, the Holy Father has bad marks, you know, on any number of cases related to sexual abuse and misconduct or in any number of, sort of issues related to clerical sexual abuse and misconduct. Now, people would say, well, the other side of the coin with that is that allegations about McCarrick were hanging around for a long time. And, you know, John Paul II was sort of mollified by Cardinal O'Connor, I think, saying, you know, I, we've looked into this and we don't have the, that much concern. And, the, you know, John Paul II was sort of too easily mollified. And the, John Paul II's administration, the nuncios under him were sort of like woefully negligent in, in their handling of allegations raised about McCarrick, or at least suspicions raised about McCarrick. You know, there's this really sort of troubling bit in the McCarrick report, this sort of misogynistic bit where um, a, a religious sister of mercy calls to raise concerns about McCarrick, and it's sort of like, well, maybe the sister, I don't know if you remember this, Ed, but the nuncio said something like, well, maybe the sister, um, you know, just wanted to be important or something like yes, that. Yes, they basically um, said yeah. she's a hysterical attention seeker. Ex- exactly. That's what, yeah, that's that's right. And so, yeah, so you might say, well, you know, John Paul II had a bad track record on, on McCarrick and Benedict XVI didn't sufficiently handle McCarrick. He he sort of half-handled him, but that, maybe that was worse. You know, okay, so, um, so the point is, there are people who would say, okay, the Pope has a good record on McCarrick because he's the one who allowed this, these allegations to go forward and McCarrick to be... Um, removed from the College of Cardinals and laicized. And, um, and I, you know, I don't think that can be completely ignored. There's truth to that. On the other hand, even with McCarrick, we don't know, we still don't yet know, and, and gosh, have I tried to do more reporting on this and better reporting on this, and I know the people who could help me with this, they just haven't helped me with it yet. But we really, no one has really told the story of how McCarrick, the allegations against McCarrick, got to the review board in the Archdiocese of New York, what the what the sequence of events was. And again, I, you know, we've talked, people have asked this before. Do you guys have stories that you're sort of holding on the back burner? Yeah, this is one that I well, know. I got like I three knew. McCarrick stories. I'm yeah, waiting right, for exactly, one but phone I call just, I'm waiting for a couple of sources, probably people to be in positions where they're better able to, to explain things to us. But, you know, the story of how McCarrick got to the New York review board is a story we don't know. And so we don't know the degree to which the Holy See allowed this to happen or the Holy See had to allow this to happen because it was otherwise going to blow up in some way that would have been very, very bad. I mean, we just don't know. And so I don't know that we can say, well, 
we we can't say because we don't have enough information the cho- the pope made or did not make this choice because we just don't know so there's that which is a sort of uh, leave that as a question mark um surrounding that there are these things like Zanchetta and Vosestis Lex Mundi and a number of other cases the chili thing where um as much as sexual abuse and misconduct in the church has been has been an issue that has been called for you know that has been risen in very serious ways and episcopal accountability has been has arisen in very serious ways as much as the pope has done some things that you know have aimed to address that like calling a global summit and as much as the pope has the challenge of addressing this in the church where there are in different parts of the world very different sort of attitudes and dispositions about this and different countries are in very different places. At the same time, you can say, okay, we can see all these direct and concrete choices that the Pope had where his choices were not in accord with his own policies on the matter or in accord with canon law on the matter of those kinds of things. Well, but I mean, and this to me has been the great frustration of the Francis pontificate so far is he has been a a prolific legislator. um, Right. Especially on the subject of Episcopal accountability. Yeah. You know, going to Madre Moribole, Vosestes, a new book six, you know, tweaking the norms of SST. I mean, he's he has he's probably issued more law um, piecemeal if you do if you discount JB two issuing the entire code uh, in 1983. He's probably issued more law than the last two popes put together. Oh, there's no question about it. Apart from promulgating the code, the pope has issued a, promulgated a lot more law than his two previous predecessors put together. Yeah, so. Um, that that's fine and that's good but on the spe- and in some cases it was desperately needed like in the financial stuff we, it was it, it was it was and to a large extent still is the wild freaking west out there and you know i i'm grateful that he has brought in all sorts of policy changes and legal changes and that is great and i think it's long overdue and i'm glad that he's done it um the thing that frustrates me to absolute distraction talking about um Clerical abuse, but most especially Episcopal accountability in in the Francis pontificate is there's, as I say, no lack of legislation. But the problem is legislation was never lacking. This was the lesson of the sexual abuse crisis in the United States in the first place is we were not suffering from a vacuum of process. We were not suffering from a lack of law. We were suffering from a clericalist mentality that said, well, I'm just not going to apply it. I'm not going to apply it to this guy because, you know. He's my guy, and I know him, yeah, so I'm just going to move cir- on. I, the circumstances are extenuating, or his political enemies are ginning this up, or whatever. Yeah, that was yeah. The, the sexual abuse crisis in the United States, where you know you had this horrific pattern of you know abusers being discovered and accused and moved from parish to parish and cycled in and out of these absolute BS therapeutic centers, you know, offering total quack remedies for the sexual abuse of minors and then returning them as fit to resume ministry in which they, you know, almost inevitably proceeded to reoffend. Um, none of that was a result of a lack of law. None of that was, we didn't have the legislation to deal with this. None of that was, well, we just didn't have a process in place. All of that was in place. It was disregarded wholesale. And that's how we got. And so again, I, I'm thrilled that Pope Francis convoked the the meeting of you know the bishop you know representatives from bishops council of the world i appreciate that vosestis lux mundi was you know in many ways a landmark effort and i think and i wrote this when it was promulgated at the time in 2016 or whatever it was um i said i i think it is if it is ever actually taken out of its glass case and used as written it is perhaps the most seismic piece of maximalist papal affirmation since vatican one like i i really do believe that it hasn't so far as i'm aware been 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 invoked or used Uh, i mean other bishops have been dismissed from their sees for uh no no reasons given but not not through the process of but anyway again i'm thrilled that pope francis has issued these laws and recognized the problems and scandals that gave rise to to them but again, the problem that needed resolution there was not a lack of law to begin with. And to issue laws and to have this sort of reforming pattern of, you know, coina madre, fosestis, stuff like that. And then to have glaring counterexamples like Zanchetta literally haunting the domus while this conference is going on and to still be there now. Yeah. It's it's a countersight. It shows that actually the church hasn't come all that far. 
from where we oh, were yeah. in the 70s and 80s. Because it's still a question of, well, we've got all the law. We've got all the procedure. Why are we but using it? Sometimes it's just my guy, you know? Right. <clears throat> and that's the issue with Zanketa. Or if we have used the law, we have this um, this complete overestimation of the importance of secrecy at the exact wrong moments. If there has been a canonical process for Zanketa, so much, it seems, could be resolved by clarity about the process. But again, and, this, this is in his legal reforms, is to right. share the files with the civil authorities on request. Which they didn't do in the case which of Zanketa. they didn't Zanketa. do. Right, yeah. So we have this week, I think, a study of what is for many people, or, or the juxtaposition at least of what is for many people, a high point of the Francis Pontificate or emblematic of some of the most beautiful things about the Francis Pontificate. And then um, this week in the square of, in, in the, in the, in the, uh, in the square in Oran, um, emblematic of some of the most acute frustrations many people have about the Francis Pontificate. It, 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 like any pontificate or any administration, it is not all um, one thing, but here are two elements in the Francis Pontificate, which I think we'll continue to evaluate and discuss other elements of, but here are two elements within the context of the Francis Pontificate, which have had very different um, results. In, in both cases, you know, it's sort of true of Francis that the Holy Father doesn't always seem to sort of hear the criticism. And and maybe this is, a, there are ways in which this is a virtue, there's ways in which this is not a virtue, I suspect. But, you know, the, the Holy Father seems to just do what he choose, what he does, what he's going to do, what he wants to do, without sort of... Um, letting himself be uh, be deterred too much by the criticism. But the the flip side of that, and, and there are times when that's very good, the flip side of that is that this uh, the legal culture of the Holy See right now is unique in a longstanding sort of history of the Church in that these norms which are passed are passed without almost any consultation at all. And, uh, and almost no vocatio legis in some cases. Right, exactly. So, um, you know, there are ways in which people say, well, the, the Pope does what what he discerns is the right thing to do. And, and there's something great about that. And, and, and then there are people who say the Pope does what he wants to do and he doesn't listen. And, uh, and so again, you know, the sort of study in, in similar characteristics in different contexts that I think, um, you know, point to some of the, some of the things about the Francis Pontificate, which have been praised. And then some of the things which have been criticized or which remain tensions or sort of acute frustrations among, uh, at least this week, the Catholics of the diocese of Iran, Argentina. And may I just say one thing? I, you know, you, we, we talked about the Pope's trip to Canada and some of the, I think, fantastic things he said and fantastic ways he's chosen to say it um, while he was there and the frustrations about Zanketa and all of this stuff. And um, I, I think it's a healthy way to talk about the Pope. Yeah. As, as, the, as the reality invisible head of the governance of the church. That, yeah. yeah. But, the, but I, I just want to say that out loud because you can't, unfortunately... You can't just assume that everyone agrees that, you know, this is the, the, the reality is that the, the general, the general impression I get through the very limited amount of other media that I read, because, you know, I, I like to read the best and that's us. Um, but, you know, the, is that the, the general premise is you know, it's either Francis bad or Francis walks on water and that you, you, you can only discuss the yeah. whole, through one of those two lenses and it's. It's un. It, it's not only unhelpful, but it's it, it's part of a polarizing tendency in in the church, which is frankly just a something that has been swallowed from the secular political sphere, which is that polarization yeah. sells and polarization is, is a great motivating force for people. I, I was at a so. dinner a couple of months ago at a at a kind of a church function, and um, and it was uh, and. Um, this guy who, this guy who I was seated next to at the dinner, who I think kind of is a benefactor to some projects locally. It was a kind of local dinner, and this guy is a benefactor to some projects locally and things like that. And and uh, and I was seated next to him, and and he was talking about the pillar, and he likes the pillar, and da da da. And then he says to me, "So I mean, but I just wish you guys would, uh, I just wish you guys would be much more direct and deliberate about the fact that Francis is the worst pope in the church's history." And I said, uh, "Well, I don't." think i mean i don't, <laughs> i don't think that's true think and i don't think any sane person would right. maintain that I, I mean i i sort of said to him like well are you, know, you ignorant or are you crazy right. and i tried to probe that and i said like look i think that there are legitimate criticisms of the holy father and we talk about that and i'm not shy about talking about that but this sort of 
this there's a there's a there is a um, I'm not I'm not trying to fault this particular guy, but there is a certain kind of um, almost uh, an egocentricity, which the Pope calls self-referent being self-referential, which must say this thing which I am experiencing with which I have frustration must be the worst thing ever to have existed. Or this is the new golden age, and we are we have never had it so good, and this is yeah, the I dawn mean, there of a people, bright new era in the church. Sort of and, the, the, the wrong kind of papal apologists would say Francis is um, beyond the pale in every single way and has ushered in a new era in the church, and da 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 da, da. And in fact, there are things about the Francis pontificate which will bear fruit, and things about the Francis pontificate which will need to be corrected, and that's true of every pontificate in the history of the life of the church. And, and if I may say so. There will be much of the Francis pontificate that won't be remembered 10 years after he's gone. Yeah, right. Or even exactly. five. And it is always yeah. thus. Yeah, it, it, it is. It is. And, uh, and, and such it is. Okay. But uh, those were some things that happened this week. And now I hope you know a little bit more about them. I am on vacation this week, and I sure know a little bit more about them than I did when oh, I Oh, we didn't get to talk about the strange case of Archbishop Gallagher. Maybe we'll talk about that next week. Nah, maybe we will. talk. I'd like to talk about that next week. And uh, and you, I suspect listeners, will like to hear about it. Um Ed, any final thoughts? Uh, when are you back? Uh, I will see you. Um, I will see you on Monday because you and I are going to a conference oh, yeah. uh, on on Monday. I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know if you bought your tickets, but I bought my tickets and I, I did reserve as a car. Um, but I'll see you next week, and then and then uh, and then we'll make a show. Oh yeah. Oh oh, that's right. We are yes, and we are going to make a show. We're going to make a show in a city near you, or at yeah, least near listen. some people. If you are a listener to the Pillar Podcast and you live in the twin cities of Minneapolis, St. Paul, or thereabouts, we would like to enjoy, invite you to join us next Thursday night. Hey guys, Kate here. Uh, JD and Ed mixed up the dates. They actually meant to say Wednesday, not Thursday. At a place that Ed is going to tell you about now, um, where we will grab a table on the pet. We can't reserve a room or a table or anything like that, but this is the place where we want to go, so this is what we're going to do. But we will grab a table on the patio or somewhere. Um, Look, it's uh, not a big place. You will easily find us. <laughs> you will find us, and we're going to record a live episode of the show right there. Hopefully. And we'd love it if you'd join us and, and have a drink with us and hang out and be on the show a little bit. Ed, what's the deal? What are the details? Yeah, I don't... I mean, the, the, again, the plan is that we will try and record the podcast there, not because it's fun to do a podcast in a pub that isn't expecting us to do that, um, but, but because we need to make a show. But we Because we need to make a show, and that's where we'll be at the time. So yeah. we will be at a... At a lovely-looking dive bar recommended to us by um, by a listener at nine one nine Randolph Street. Uh, sorry, nine one nine Randolph Avenue in Saint Paul. So the good half of the Twin Cities. What's the name of the bar? It's called Skinner's. JD. Skinner's. We will be next Thursday night. What time are we going to get there? I imagine we will be there from let us say six thirty. We're going to get to Skinner's in Saint Paul on on Thursday, August the fourth. Wednesday, August the third. At six thirty p.m. Open up a tab. Uh, at some point during the evening, we'll record an episode of the podcast, we think. Um, but more than anything, if you'd like to come have a drink with us, hang out, hang out with other listeners of The Pillar, and uh, just overall, you know, talk hot dish and um, the many bishops of Minnesota, we'll be there and we'd love to uh, we'd love to raise a glass with you. We, we really would. It would be fun. And I, yeah. I imagine that the, the, we'll the poor people who too. run this pub are not going to know what the heck at them. Skinner's, August 4th. 3rd. 6.30. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, JD Flynn. I'm joined by, this week by my podcasting partner and uh, and really this week as I'm on vacation, the skipper of our team, uh, Ed Condon. We'll be back. Viva Voce next week. Again, J.D. and Ed will be at Skinner's in St. Paul on Wednesday, August 3rd, that's next Wednesday, at 6.30. I'll put the address in the show notes.